My name is Manuela Mozo. I'm the executive director of Untitled Art Fairs. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us in our podcast lounge, which has been generously furnished by Inside Weather, with additional support from Withers Worldwide, our presenting partner for podcast lounge conversation series. This conversation will focus on the very important exhibition, Soul of a Nation, which is currently on view at the De Young Museum and is the focus of the extraordinary booth presented by Michael Rosenfeld Gallery. Our moderator, James Voorhees, is chair of the graduate program in curatorial practice at the California College of the Arts. He will properly introduce our speakers and I will pass it on to him. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you, Manuela. Um, I just want to say that we're really grateful for Untitled inviting us to be part of these panels. And um, from, from my perspective, it's been really great working with Manuela and, and Kamal and everyone, uh, the team at Untitled. So like Manuela said, the, the topic today is Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, which is the exhibition that's on at the De Young through March 20th which is really incredible, and um, if you haven't had a chance to see it, of course we recommend that everyone see it. Uh, Lee Rayford is an Associate Professor of African American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches and researches about race, justice, and visuality. And Michael Rosenfeld's gallery, Rosenfeld's gallery for over 30 years, has been instrumental in shaping the collections of leading public institutions across the United States and internationally. So I'm, I'm really grateful that we are here to have the conversation. Um, Michael's presentation here has art work by such seminal artists as Frank Bowling, Ed Clark, Sam Gilliam, Jacob Lawrence, Norman Lewis, Betty Saar, and William T. William, among others. And it's a pretty broad topic, so soul of a nation. Um, so we're kind of going to just delve into it by talking a little bit about some of the standout artists, some of the standout works, and, and delve into conversations around like abstraction and figuration, and also like what that exhibition does um, uh, for, for these artists as well as your gallery. So Lee, maybe you might want to begin by um, talking about some of those works. Sure. Um, well, I think that the show itself is so stunning and so powerful, in, particularly in just the, the, the gathering together of so many, um, I think, for, you know, for me, luminaries um, of black art. Um, but one person, one, one set of, um, one artist that I'm very excited about and I really want to hear Michael talk about uh, is William T. Williams. And, and thinking, um, you know, I remember seeing um, some of his work um, probably, you know, maybe 20 years ago. I remember there was a, a, an article in the New York Times and there was a cover image, the cover of the art section had the piece that's in Soul of a Nation now. And just being, like, just thrown 
just, you know, just blown away by um, a work that is so obviously, you know, very modern, modernist, you know, it's sort of very intense lines, um, but also deeply reminiscent of African-American quilt making practices. And so it, it really felt to me this kind of, um, you know, intersection of the, sort of hitting this like really beautiful sweet spot between something deeply familiar and um, kind of in, in a vernacular tradition um, while also being at the kind of leading edge of modern art. Um, and so to see, but then to see William's work, um, and especially at the De Young, in conversation with Howardina Pindell, um, kind of through this beautiful sightline of Fred Eversley's, Eversley's um, uh, uh, what are they exactly? Py pyrite works or glass works? No, they're, they're resin. Resin works, yeah. Um, and of course the Sam Gilliam um, was just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a whole, to me, it's a whole new way of understanding the history of art. And um, because you had begun speaking about William T. Williams, I'll take this opportunity to um, explain a little further about Williams' narrative, as well as his abstraction. Um, and in recent years, it's really only been in recent years that William T. Williams has been more open to discussing the narrative about his paintings, to, to openly discussing that his childhood in a rural black community in um, North Carolina, that the experiences, the memories, the smells, the textures um, really have defined his art. Although a very sophisticated abstract painter. He's very proud of the fact that he was a graduated from Yale and got his MFA in 1968. Um, the level and degree of craftsmanship in his work, the perfection, the exquisite paint quality is quite a thing to see as a formalist. But he does combine in an, what appears to be an effortless way extraordinarily complex narratives about his experience as a, as a black man in America. Um, the early works from 1970, like Hawk's Return that you were referring to in, in Soul of a Nation, are 108 by 84 inch abstract canvases, very dynamic, and for Bill, they are about dissonance. Many people think that they're about harmony and perfect, eloquent compositions. But for Bill, they're social and political statements about the dissonance in society that he was experiencing. Um, not many people would necessarily understand the difference between Frank Stella and William T. Williams, but that's, that's one of the basic differences. And, um, and Bill has been building on that series of works for the past 50 years. I'm, I'm curious, I'm, um, I want to talk about education, um, partially because I'm, I'm struck by, like, how, always struck by how much gallerists and, and others know about the work and the history, and you've worked with these artists for over 30 years, and both of you play different roles in, in educating. Um, and Lee, some of your, your role might be a little more obvious in terms of the research and the connection to students and, and publishing. 
And Michael, maybe you could talk a little bit about like what what is what is education like like like. Well, it's it's funny that you asked that question because when I opened the gallery, I didn't realize I was supposed to open a gallery and show art that people wanted to buy. Um, I had never really worked in a gallery before. I just um, had an idea that you opened a gallery to educate people about artists who you believe in, who you believe deserve more attention, and you work hard to bring them to the forefront. I mean, I naively had this idea that, you know, maybe one day I could help expand the canon of art and really expand who people think um, the great American artists are. Um, because there were so many artists whose works I admired, many of them happened to be African-American. Um, it, it wasn't a conscious decision of mine to be so involved with so many African-American artists. It was more about bringing to the forefront of the art world artists who were brilliant, talented, neglected. And that's, that space was available for me to occupy. Yeah. And, and which artists did you gravitate to first? Um, Gosh, I mean, of, of course, you know, originally I, I, I knew about and gravitated most towards artists like Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden, who I, I wrote letters to when I was a child. Um, and, you know, and I knew about, uh, you know, a great deal about their work. But then it was really artists like Norman Lewis, Beaufort Delaney, and Alma Thomas, who I recognized very early on as having a very particular place in the sort of pantheon of... African-American art, but also in the history of American art, that those were three artists, all were born in the early 20th century, who became abstractionists, all interestingly died within a year of each other in 1978. Um, and that those three artists seemed to have a different kind of a quality and integrity as abstractionists that I wasn't really aware of in many of the other artists. So I really focused on those three for many years. As well, as well as Charles Alston and Hale Woodruff and, and I mean, many, many other artists, figurative artists, abstract artists, but those three always really were, were very important to me. And they all seem also, I mean, just going back to your earlier comments about, um, about Bill Williams' work, they're all artists, too, that um, are, they're abstractionists, working in an abstractionist vein, but also very interested in um, what abstraction can tell us or convey about social and political discord. And I'm thinking of Norman Lewis's, um, the kind of figures that, that circle that feel like, you know, they feel like the middle of a protest march, right? But are also kind of, um, but are, are very abstracted as well. Um, so it's, it, there's a, it's these new kinds of visual languages, I feel like, that, that um, people like Bearden and, and Williams and, and Thomas have created um, that are really powerful. No, I, I agree, and, and when you turn the clock back to the 1940s, Norman Lewis is singularly the only African-American artist who is truly part of the first generation of abstract expressionists. And he develops a mature style between about 1945 and 1949 that we could describe as a calligraphic abstraction. Um, most of his calligraphic abstractions that also have these beautiful atmospheric um, backgrounds um, suggest processions of figures. Sometimes they suggest funeral processions, sometimes a Thanksgiving Day parade. 
sometimes children playing Ring Around the Rosie, uh, which was, was the title of some of his paintings, promenades, all, all kinds of processions of figures. And he would use that kind of an abstract language to convey different um, stories, um, different experiences. When the civil rights era began in the 50s, um, he started to use that language to create civil rights works. They're very abstract, they're not necessarily in your face. His titles are very ambiguous, you have to interpret them, he leaves them open to interpretation. But yeah, but the abstraction, he maybe sort of leads the way and shows that, that one can be an abstractionist and a social and political artist at the same time. Um, what about the politics that I'm curious then, what kind of politics uh, compare between abstraction and say figuration and, or, 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 or the realist works? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, I think one of the quotes um, that are featured in, the, in your display in the gallery um, here at the fair of Williams is that you know, people didn't understand why he was making abstract work. And, um, and so for so long, the notion that um, African-American artists would uh, be making work that wasn't figurative, that wasn't um, realist, um, that somehow those works were seen as apolitical, as not part, uh, as not advancing a kind of struggle, right? Um, a struggle for dignity and recognition. Um, and, and so I think in, it's been in the last maybe decade or so that um, work that a African American artists working in abstraction have come to be really be reconsidered. Um, that people are starting to pay attention to them, starting to we're starting to get dissertations and articles and um, you know increasingly more exhibitions um, about a whole host of these artists. But um, you know, and, and I think there are ways in which, on, on one hand, some of, some of these artists were um, uh, excluded or, or marginalized from um, the sort of you know, well-known abstract expressionist circles, um, and then at the same time were also seen as um, a little bit outside of um, you know, the traditional or sort of what we understood as black art in the moment. And I think one of the, for me, one of the most powerful things or the power, powerful narrative or curatorial threads of Soul of a Nation is to recognize that, um, that the spectrum between abstraction and figuration, um, though wide, is very fluid. Um, and that there are so many artists who are working, I mean, even like a, a group like Afrocobra, um, that work is, you know, profoundly, explicitly political, right? Images of... Um, you know, uh, of Angela Davis, um, but the use of text and of color um, is itself um, kind of surreal and takes us, you know, and takes us out of a, a, the realm of, um, you know, kind of social realist um, expectations. Um, and I think that is, a, you know, I think it, it really changes the way that we can talk about what black art is and what it can be. Going back to the earlier question about education, Lee, uh, like what kind of impact does an exhibition like Soul of a Nation have on your teaching methodologies or going into the spring with having the exhibition there for almost two more months? Um, well, I should, I should also start by saying that um, I 
was not trained as an art historian. Um, I took art history classes, um, but the the narrative of art history, you know, the way sort of you move through the various movements, it was um, always felt really foreign and alienating to me. Um, and so my degree is in African American studies, and I came to art through um, through thinking about how um, how art art practices, um, art making have always been part of black people's lives um, and how black people have, um, you know, created beauty, right? Um, and have made, um, created new languages to express what it means to be black in the United States um, and around the world. And so, um, you know, so having um, also this sort of more representation, but at the same time, I should also say that as a kid, I spent a lot of time in museums, um, and I loved going to museums and and often, you know, even just trying to find um, something that resonated as, um, you know, either represented black figures or even just kind of rebellious, right, <laughs> in a certain way. Um, so for me, being able to take my students or send my students to Soul of a Nation, and I'm also really excited. Um, at the Berkeley Art, the Berkeley Art Museum has just made this huge um, acquisition of uh, Rosie Lee Tompkins' um, quilts, um, and so having these works sort of in conversation um, really helps me. I think on one hand, think about how we can tell uh, African American and American history through art objects and visual culture, which in many ways is what art history does. Um, how we can think about how art tells us stories about who we are. Um, but also I think what I'm really excited about are that increasingly I'm seeing the ways that my students are um, seeing themselves, uh, finding, uh, recognizing that spaces like these um, are welcoming or can be welcoming to them, that these can be careers in which they find themselves, that they can, um, you know, work in galleries, they can write about art, they can um, think about, be, become museum professionals. Um, and so I really also want to uh, uh, salute this, salute the de Young, um, which hasn't always been very welcoming um, to, you know, beyond a kind of traditional art, art historical canon. Um, to, you know, for, frankly, for hiring my students, right, mm -hmm. to come and be docents and mm -hmm. to spend time um, in the museum. Yeah. I have one more question about the education I want to get to with you, Michael, because there is a way that you're, you're mediating um, work by these artists for different reasons. You have now over 30 years of education about, an, about a number of them, and you communicate regularly with collectors and, and museums and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that role of education and, the, and how you are stewarding this, this work into different collections? Well, I was, I was always very aware that education would be a big part of the gallery's mission, that to simply put the works on the walls was never going to uh, educate people. Getting them to look at the work is one thing, getting them to learn about and understand the works is another, and, and, and it makes it a much more meaningful experience. Um, so from day one, the gallery did publish catalogs, and we did um, hire very significant art historians and critics to write catalogs for gallery exhibitions, and um, 
recently we've put it out in the catalogs as time has, as the gallery has developed and miraculously the gallery has been successful. And over the years we've been publishing more and more ambitious catalogs that are more like books. So recently we put out a catalog at a Norman Lewis exhibition called Norman Lewis Looking East. We put out a major catalog for our exhibition, Charles White and His Circle. Um, William T. Williams, um, his recent paintings has another catalog. And these are catalogs that are now sort of hardcover, 150-page catalogs with, you know, with, with scholarly contributions, which are commissioned usually writings. But when I started the gallery, um, there were a very small number of art historians to turn to. And many of them, um, people like Beryl Wright, um, Leslie King-Hammond, Lowry Sims, um, we all were about 30 years younger then, um, but they were very eager to help. And we would commission essays. Um, and the catalogs became a phenomenon unto themselves, as a matter of fact. And we had no idea at the time how much interest there was in learning, in learning, and it became increasingly obvious that there was a hunger for information. Um, I also was taking for granted how much information I had to share because for me, it's this is just my life. You know, I know the artists, I live with the works, I experience the works, I take them all in. You know, and you take for granted sometimes of what you have. Others don't really quite understand, so. Over time, with the publications, with um, lectures at the gallery, um, even doing programs with first and second graders from public schools in Harlem that would be bussed into the gallery. I mean, all the education's always been, been critical and, um, and continues to be in, in, a, in a funny way. In recent years, um, there almost seems, as the audience for African-American art has grown, there's an incredible opportunity now for more and more scholarship. Um, it almost feels to me and the gallery, we're under more pressure than we ever were to do things better than we ever have. Um, and I do believe, and I, I think that you'll agree that there's a need for more scholars. There are so few scholars, art historians out there who have developed the expertise in the field, and, but there's incredible opportunity. Um, so the gallery, I often say, has been a balance between education and it's, I guess it's a business. I never thought it would be a successful, lucrative business. Um, again, miraculously, particularly in the last 10 years, as more people have become interested in the gallery program, you know, we've been increasingly successful. It's been certainly gratifying on many, many levels to see that Bob Thompson and Benny Andrews and, and so many other artists have become household names. It's sort of astonishing. Yeah, I just, I wanna um, add, I think it's so key about the, about the opportunity to be able to write and, and being able to um, have the expertise to be able to talk about, you know, what it means for Bill Williams having grown up in the Jim Crow South, right? Um, or, you know, or Romare Bearden to have moved from the South to the North and, um, you know, and being, um, 
these different kinds of experiences that I think that that um, you know has been for me one of the, the most important things about teaching um, is making sure that um, that students people who are going to write have the skills, have the knowledge, um, and have a, a certain kind of care, have a sense of care for black lives um, and black history to be able to write about the art. Because I think that's um, been sometimes one of the challenges um, in seeing how in the kind of new excitement for some of these artists um, that there's a kind of um, either lack of knowledge about uh, historical origins or about narrative, personal narratives um, that also um, ignore the fact that people have multiple influences, are well-trained tra well in multiple areas, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that somebody is, that Romare Bearden's, um, for example, his influences aren't just, um, you know, jazz clubs, but they're also Caravaggio, right? Um, and that there's a kind of, um, you know, and, and then also really caring about what happens to black people, right? And the experiences of black people. And I think that's, um, I, think, I think that's just, that has to be fundamental to the work as no, well. You, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous misunderstanding about how important the context is to the works that these artists have made. You talk about Bearden and, and, you know, what a smart, smart, knowledgeable man he was about the history of art, how all of his training and looking and studying led him to create his art, his awareness of old masters like Vermeer. He loved Mondrian. The interest, so did Jacob Lawrence love Mondrian. So here you have artists whose works are expressionist, they're not visually you know, exquisitely rendered, that's purposeful, um, but they are creating their own modernism, which is based on riffing, in a sense, on, on the history of art. And then they carve out a place for themselves, which is distinctively theirs. And there's a tremendous brilliance behind that, and you'll find that in artists who are riffing, you know, many of the African-American artists of, like Bob Thompson, are riffing on the history of art, quote, making literally quotes from Poussin, quotes from, quote, quoting Goya, um, many, many, many artists. You'll see this throughout, there's, there's, a, there's a certain pride in showing this kind of knowledge. Um, so while, the, while so many of the artists in Soul of a Nation um, you know, appear to be creating something brand new, they're actually part of a continuum. And it's very exciting, but that only comes from their education, their, their, their knowledge, their experience. I mean, Charles White is, you know, I mean, just over and over and over again, one artist after another is, you know, very, very aware of what they're what they're doing, how they are reacting to their times, but also how they're integrating themselves into the continuum of our history. Yeah. 
I'm curious, so both of you represent two different but obviously overlapping spheres of discourse production around these figures and these moments. And Solidation is the culmination of, of probably what is from the a more of a commercial market as well as an academic market that the artists and the works are there. And um, I'm cu curious if there are figures who are not there that that you've crossed before, or, who's, who, or who are, or are not, not as, 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 as well represented as you might think they should be, and, 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 and why? I mean, this, when when um, Mark Godfrey and Zoe Whitley curated this exhibition, those are the original curators from the Tate in London. They, they had a very, very steep learning curve. And they were really curating a show and learning at the same time. Um, I believe that, you know, there are many artists who could have or should have been in the show. Some artists that were in the show, like, um, that maybe should have been represented in different ways. This is just my own opinion. Um, but somebody like Hale Woodruff did not make the cut. I didn't really quite understand that. Um, I know that Charles Alston, I believe, is in the show here, but I'm not sure he was in the original exhibition, and he would have been very, very fundamental. Again, you know, an artist like Beaufort Delaney, who was, you know, he, um, he without, he, Norman Lewis, and Alma Thomas, who were they're, they're really, the, those three are, sort of a foundation for a generation of African-American abstractionists. And um, Beaufort Delaney was not really included in the exhibition. He was um, included with one portrait of a, of a black man that unfortunately they thought it was a portrait of James Baldwin. It turned out not to be a portrait of James Baldwin. Um, but, but, you know, but Delaney should have had a major abstraction in the show um, or... Um, a major work that depicted um, the scene in Paris in the 60s. But they were just, you know, they, they were learning on the job. I, I feel like and they, they curated a brilliant exhibition. There are so many artists who could have been in the show. Barbara Chase Ribou, who is included here in, at the De Young um, with her great Malcolm X sculpture from Berkeley's collection, um, is in the show, but she was not in the exhibition either. So each venue, as the show has been traveling, has been adding and subtracting. So the show that one is seeing right now is not the original show. Many of the works are the same. But you know, I, do th I do think that there, there are many possibilities of artists co who could have been in it. The, the Bob Thompson painting in the show was put in more as, document, as more of a documentary painting of Leroy Jones and his family, but not of a great Bob Thompson painting. So th things like that, where I think some of the key figures could have been represented with different works. Um, at the same time, you know, the Tate organized a show, and I think you'll agree, that no one in the United States, for whatever reason, was willing to curate. It's, which is fascinating that it took a, a, a major institution in the UK to curate a show about such an important exhibition about American art, American history, to look at um, 
a topic which is, has been difficult for museums to address. But and I'm very, very grateful to the Tate because what they've created is something of a snowball effect now where this, this, this exhibition had no venues. Um, when it was curated by the Tate, they could not find venues until the show opened in London. And after that, Crystal Bridges, and they signed on. And after Crystal Bridges, the Brooklyn Museum signed on. And then the Broad, and now the De Young, and then the show will go to the MFA in Houston. And, and this show has had an influence because um, it's presenting to an audience um, a world of art that very few had seen in books and magazines and even fewer had ever seen in person. So it's, it's, it's really been a sea change. I, mean, I, I, um, I would agree. I think one of the, the, the things that's happened, that snowball effect that you're talking about is really important because even the ways that individual artists um, have um, sort of grown in stature, grown in reputation over the course of the various iterations of the show. So I'm thinking about, um, for example, um, Ming Smith, the photographer, uh, the, the only, um, uh, I think, female member of the Spiral Collective who has, um, you know, a huge part of the wall, a huge part of the exhibition uh, devoted space in, in the De Young. And, um, and so watching more attention, you know, her, uh, grow, and so the opportunity to really see her work in conversation with Dawood Bay, Dawood Bay's work, um, I think is really important. Um, I think also I do want to give um, a shout out to the work of Kelly Jones because I think her two shows or a few of her shows really all, all laid the groundwork for Soul of a Nation in the U.S. So um, the Witness show um, about civil rights, um, art in the age of civil rights, um, now Dig This, the work in L.A. Um, so so many of the, those artists that appear in Soul of a Nation um, really um, sort of, I think, I mean, in my my general philosophy is that if you know if I have am, am coming to an artist, um, Kelly Jones has probably already written about them. So start there. Um, so um, so I would say that I think um, the other thing that I you know I, I was also very excited in the De Young iteration to see a number of Bay Area artists, um, um, people you know that um, but you know I'm thinking of someone like. Um, also, Mary Lovelace O'Neill, who taught at UC Berkeley um, for many years, um, one of the I think the, the um, uh, was chair of the Department of Art Practice at UC Berkeley, um, and is an abstractionist. Um, and I think it, you know we're just now starting to um, you know people being paying broader attention to um, to her work. Um, but I think, you know, what that raises is, you know, not just about who's in, who's out as a set of curatorial strategies or questions, because that's, that is part of the role of the curator is to make choices and to construct a, a particular kind of narrative. Um, but I think it's a, it's a different kind of question about, you know, thinking about, well, what, who are the, the artists that, um, you know, 
um, who didn't have galleries, um, whose work aren't in collections or those collections are lost. Or, you know, I think increasingly what museums are finding is that they actually have a lot of it, have some of this work buried um, in, in their collections that they bought years and years ago and have, they, it hasn't been seen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for example, the Berkeley Art Museum has um, an incredible work by Peter Bradley who was himself a gallerist. Um, and, you know, when we pulled that work out, um, you know, we c contacted Peter, Peter and said, you know, how do you hang it? And he said, I, I haven't seen the work for 40 years. Um, and frankly, neither had anybody else, right? Um, so I think what this also opens up is an opportunity to ask a different set of questions um, and to start to actually retrain our eyes in a way um, and I think in the way that you, you did 30 years ago to pay attention to what, you know, what is visually exciting to me um, and not necessarily um, what is um, sort of what's hot in the market. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I also think that like an observation of who's represented and how they're represented or not represented is, a, is an opportunity to identify the discourse that needs to be pursued, especially in an, in an academic city like San Francisco, like which area could use more work and could, could one, doctoral students and so forth could gravitate to. I mean, I also, Michael, like you're so well versed in these artists and this exhibition that is here that you, you've seen, you've spent time with, how has the exhibition impacted how you talk about the work um, that you're presenting? And uh, uh, yeah. Um, God, it's, I certainly am, I'm not, how's it impacted the way I talk? It certainly makes me very proud to see mm -hmm. um, this kind of, these, these installations at these major institutions of, you know, many, many artists who have been my favorite artists for decades. It's quite an astonishing thing to see. What, one of the things which I, I found particularly fascinating and something which um, was how clear this east-west um, conversation is or was. Um, the, um, you know, my personal experiences with Betty Saar for so many years, um, Betty and I must have been about 25 or 30 years ago, and you know, we had the honor of working with her for about 20 years. And, and I was, sometimes I was so close to the work, you know, I didn't even realize that there was a whole other world in LA. And again, Kelly Jones and Now Dig This helped define that increasingly, but the sort of textural assemblage world of Los Angeles and how Watts Tower created this, uh, how all this art is created, say, in response to or the shadows of Watts Tower versus the sensibility of, let's call it, the continuation of the New York School of Painting in New York, where it is about painting. It is about, you know, refined painting. It's about being part of uh, a tradition of realism or abstraction that, that begins earlier in the century. And in Los Angeles, in Soul of a Nation, it's one of the, my favorite parts of the exhibition is this, the fantastic um, 
you know, multimedia assemblage and sculptures um, with the, the great David Hammond's um, employment office and the, the Noah Purifoy pieces. And um, it's, it's just a fantastic part of the, the, the show. And, and, and for me, it really it, it educated me tremendously about that, but also illustrated how clearly there were these two worlds. I mean, the world was not as small then as it is today. And um, there were really two worlds of artists. I would, I, I, I would uh, I wanna underscore that, I, especially as a, um, a, you know, I grew up in Harlem um, and spent most of my, you know, first half of my life on the East Coast and then moved here about 16 years ago. And even just the, right, the sense of, of space, of material. And I think of, you know, the distinction between, say, Howardina Pendel, whose, you know, whose pieces are um, hole punches and, um, you know, uh, the sort of debt, the detritus of, you know, from working at the, um, at the Met and kind of sitting in her tiny apartment, applying um, very, clo very close up to the canvas, applying these little tiny pieces to, um, uh, you know, to her canvas. And the, the pieces have her cat's hair, like, you know, glued to the canvas and sort of, you know, what it means, that kind of sense of, um, you know, a certain kind of sense of confinement versus Purifoy, who's, you know, with, you know, Watts, the, the, the Watts pieces, you know, just taking the, the burnt neon and, you know, hauling these huge scraps and, and making huge works out of them or working in the desert. Um, and I think there, there is something about, um, or even, you know, uh, the Studio Z Collective, um, you know, that was, you know, Marin Hassinger and Hammett, David Hammonds and um, Senga and Goody. Right, like doing these ritual performances under freeways. Um, and I think that's, you know, this different sense of what space can be, what a plate, how to make home out of a place, um, and how that kind of appears in, um, you know, in the materials that, that artists draw on. Um, Lee, uh, before, we, before we close, it's about ready time, but we've swapped correspondence a, a, a bit before today's talk, and one of the topics that came up was um, that you thought you'd like to speak about uh, Africa and African-American art. And, I, and I'm wondering if you might, we didn't really go into that, but like we might hear. Well, that, that was really me being opportunistic to hear more about the, J, the Jacob Lawrence piece that's um, at, uh, at the, the Rosenfeld Gallery booth, which I think was made during his, uh, his was it his Rosen, Rosenwald Fellowship uh, in Nigeria. It was in his second visit to Nigeria, right. the first one in 1962, um, when he was actually, the migration series actually went to Africa and, and it was being shown. Then he returned in 1964 and he did a series of works in Nigeria of, of life in the marketplaces. And um, the circumstances of how he went, um, I think are complicated, but he went. No, so I was more just also trying to think through, well, and I guess also thinking about um, different kinds of, you know, so the emergence 
in um, what we see in, in Soul of a Nation because so many artists um, were looking to Africa and really sort of reimagining their relationship to um, you know, to the continent um, and thinking about what kind different kinds of materials, different kinds of practices, um, you know, how to incorporate ritual different ways of naming, um, you know, as part of, um, as part of what we call um, black art or art in the age of black power. Um, and so we wanted to just, you know, really just more thinking, kind of wondering about those kinds of, how we understand um, Africa and, Afri and the African diaspora as part of what we're calling, um, you know, Soul of a Nation, the art and soul of a See, nation. And, th and that's sort of an exciting exhibition that nobody has worked on. You know, that will probably begin with Henry Oswa Tanner going to Africa in 1900, 1905, different artists following that tradition. Um, and even today, of course, there's so much great art coming out of Africa. Um, but it reminded me of um, John Biggers, who was not included in, again, it, who was in and who was out, have to admit, very meaningful to the career of those artists who were in the soul of a nation and those who were excluded, it's, it's unfortunate. But somebody like John Biggers, who was not in the exhibition, um, in 1957, he went to Africa because he wanted to dispel this, I, the romantic ideas of Africa being a jungle um, and of, of without culture, without, without um, sophistication. And John Biggers was a professor at Texas Southern University. Uh, he was highly trained, got his doctorate at Penn State in the early 50s, was at Hampton University with Elizabeth Catlett and, and uh, Hale Woodruff and Charles White in the 1940s. Um, and he knew how important it was to show African-Americans what Africa really is, not this sort of romantic picture that one sees in Tarzan movies. Which, of, which, of, which, of, which of, No, but that offended him <laughs> to no end. But you know, the image that people in America thought. So he went to Africa. Um, he did spectacular drawings of life in Africa, the beautiful. He published a book called Anansi, and, and out it went into the world to, you know, again, again, to educate and to show, you know, Americans what Africa is really about. Um, but, um, no, that's, that's a, frankly, a, an amazing exhibition yet to be done. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I think that I would love just thinking about, like, what the possibilities, like, what, you know, what, what, you know, what do shows, what might shows look like after Soul of a Nation? And I think one of the things that, um, you know, is the two things I would love to, would, would be a show that thinking sort of diasporically, and, I'm, and um, I'm thinking even of the kind of suite of exhibitions that are up at, at MOAD right now, right, that are Kwame Braithwaite's um, photographs uh, from someone who's not in Soul of a Nation, but is very much in conversation. Um, with that show, um, and then contemporary photographers, African-American photographers, who are um, the MFON Collective, who are in photographing contemporary Africa. And I think I would love to see um, kind of more, um, 
both a combination of more historical shows um, that so that we continue to mine our archives and our collectives and also give due and space and recognition to so many artists who have been working and producing for decades who have not received the kind of critical attention that I think they deserve. Um, and, simul and simultaneously, I'd also like to see how we can build a legacy uh, or a kind of conversation about generational, um, about that work um, in, in between more senior artists and more contemporary artists. That would be great, yeah. I think that's probably a really good place to stop. And I, um, I just want to thank Lee and Michael both on behalf of Untitled for participating in this uh, series. And thank you very much. Thank you.